Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast Philosophize with Matt and Dave. Today, we're going to be talking about the 1972 film Silent Running. There's going to be spoilers. Of course, there are. So if you haven't seen the film and you don't want to be spoiled, go and check it out and then come back to us. Hi, Dave. Hey there, Matt. Everything good? Yeah. Well, you've picked this film, um, have, Silent yes. Running. Yep. So why why did you pick this film? Um, as much nostalgia as anything else. This is one I remember from being a kid, and it really sort of, hit, what do they say? Hitting me where I lived. I love the pace. I love the visuals. I particularly love the droids. Um, so yeah, it's just a, a really good nostalgic trip back into the past of my sci-fi viewing as a kid. And it's been, uh, the opportunity here to, to, to look at it again and talk about it with you was just too big to leave alone. Fair enough. So do you want to just quickly give us a summary of the film? So Silent Running, 1972, directed by Douglas Trumbull. Uh, before we talk about the film, let's talk about old Dougie. Douglas um, directed a couple of films, but he's he's most known for his special effects. And so Silent Running in 1972 comes two or three years after, you know, one of the landmark uh, cinematic events in science fiction, 2001, A Space Oddity. Odyssey. Done it again. Done it again. <laughs> That that I'm just going to call it 2001 now because this is about the second or third recording I've got that wrong. Right, so that <laughs> comes it, it comes a couple of years after 2001, and um, Trumbull did the effects on 2001, and he went on to do the effects in Close Encounters, which comes a few years later. One of your favourite films, Matt, the Star Trek motion picture, Blade Runner. So he's he's uh, if oh you like, I did not know that um, I did not know that. He's so he's he's up there, yeah. I mean, all of those all of those films are landmark films, yeah, of the early sort of like period of sci-fi, uh, of serious sci-fi in the late sixties through to the early eighties. Just as an aside, an aside to the aside, this film is set around the rings of Saturn, and in the original Stargate sequence in two thousand and one, the idea was to have it set around the rings of Saturn, but they couldn't get the special effects to work in time. And so he repurposed all of that and developed it for this film. And that became one of the impetuses for making this film. So there's a really good relationship with with Space Odyssey 2001 that came three years before. And it's in that period, it's in the early 70s period of sci-fi, where we get these kind of complex issue issue orientated films before, if you like, we hit the blockbuster period towards the end of that decade. 77, isn't it? Uh, Close Encounters and Star Wars? Yeah. 77, yeah. So it comes in that period of the early kind of really serious sci-fi. Um, I'm sure we'll be doing a few more of these. But anyway, right, the film itself. It's some few hundred years in the future, and the Earth has become concreted over. And all of the forests and all of the wildlife have been put into geodesic domes, which are circling in space in the solar system around Saturn. And people are looking after them on the hope that at some point the ships will be recalled and the Earth reforested, so to speak. 
Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. One of the crew on the ship that we're interested in, the Valley Forge, crew of four people, um, the main character, the central character of the film, Freeman Lowell. Um, he's been with the project since the start. He's vehemently opposed to the uh, deforestation of the planet and highly expecting that at any moment the call will come and they'll be able to reforest the planet Earth. But that doesn't happen. The crew are ordered to destroy the domes with these forests in and return to Earth, return the ships to commercial work, as um, the executive order has it. And Lau rebels. He kills the other crew members and takes the ship off, faking its destruction so he can save the forest. And that's pretty much where most of the film lies in the aftermath of that event. Uh, the conclusion of the film comes when one of the ships that was accompanying them finds the Valley Forge again, and Lowell has to make a really, really tough decision. That's pretty much how the film plays out. What did you think of it, Matt? I thought it was interesting. It really does feel halfway between 2001 and Alien. Oh, go on. In what way? Well, I'd say in terms of sort of sci-fi storytelling, I'd say it's further ahead than 2001. You know, that there's more character-driven story here and, you know, it's it's sort of private enterprise that, you know, you don't really find out too much about it, but, you know, just, you know, being told, okay, just destroy these things. We're going back to commercial business. It reminded me of the, the corporation in Alien. And oh, right, okay, yeah. Also, also a lot in terms of, like, the, the effects as well. In fact, it's based on one ship and... I'd say Alien has taken more influence from this film than it has from 2001 in terms of um, the sort of the ship design and things like that. Um, that's that's something I saw. Yeah, that's I, I really like that. I mean, it's got it's it. This this film is is not narratively complex in any way, shape, or form. Uh, that doesn't mean a good or bad thing to me. It's just just an absolute fact. And you're right, the look and feel of it is definitely not related to 2001 in the way in which spaceships are put together, the, the mm. background or anything like that. Yeah, no, I like the alien connection. Hadn't hadn't occurred to me at all. But I'd, I'd say f- further as well on that point. The, Go on. Whereas um, 2001, although there are characters in it and things happen to those characters, it's very much a film about some weird space stuff going on and aliens. It feels much more from an alien's point of view than from something happening to a human, whereas this is about you know something that a human being decides to do in a space context, I'm in the employee of a corporation and um, all, everything happens on a single ship and, well, it raises ethical problems. I think that's a really good point. It's not an alien invasion movie. It's it's not speculative in any way, shape or form in the way that something like 2001 is. In its visual tone, it kind of more reminded me of something like Planet of the Apes, uh, the very first Planet of the Apes film the kind of fears of the current time pushed into the future so that we can see them with a certain clarity. Very real fears of the time. With with Planet of the Apes, it's about nuclear destruction. With this, it's an ecological, it's an ecological message. It's an mm. ecological film. And it's been often criticized that it's that it's too obvious. I don't think things being too obvious or less obvious really, really matter at all. It's just whether or not if it's a good film or not. And I, I think this is an excellent film. So, yeah, this is a, a film about environmental concerns that were, you know, really coming to the fore in the late 60s and 
and early 70s. Now, perhaps it's worth just kind of diving a bit deeper into the setup and and having a look at that, because I think it actually raises some interesting philosophical issues, Matt. So mm-hmm. um, it's so what have we got? We, perhaps we start with the visuals. I mean, the opening scene to me is absolutely uh, a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. Um, the, it's micro shooting, a camera slowly crawling through bug's eye view of flowers with dew on them and leaves with dew on them and a snail and a tortoise or turtle. I would need a biologist to probably point which out to me. Did uh, it have legs or flippers? I'd have to go and rewatch. It was it was semi-submerged in water, but it might have been a tortoise taking a bath. I don't know. Point is <laughs> frogs, soil, earth, man in a pool, in a in a in a in a in a kind of like robe. White robe, very Garden of Eden. Um, so we're in a garden, it kind of pans out. He's swimming in a rather dirty pool, I might add, stroking and talking to rabbits. The camera pulls out and we see that um, this forest is in a geodesic dome. And what does geodesic mean, Dave, just for um, viewers and possibly Matt, who doesn't know what that word means? It's the way in which all the panels fit together. I, I believe it's the way of constructing a, a circular... A, a spherical object with the maximum amount of tensile strength, something okay. like that, because of the shapes of the thing. They got one. The gar- the Eden Project down in um, West Country is constructed in that way. Mm. And all the time, all of this over this opening thing, there's a there's a beautiful piece of organic music. It's not synthy. Yep, it, the, the music, if you like, and the and the and where the film is being enunciated from is from the perspective of the forest, is from the perspective of the garden. It's, it's, it's a very organic, folk-driven kind of melody. Very unspacey. The first few minutes of the film are very, very unspacey. Um, mm. And indeed, it takes a while for us to understand where this is located. Uh, the man who was swimming in the lakes, Freeman Lowell, we see him collect some fruit, go to a kitchen. We're now in the ship. He opens a window, looks out into space, and then there's a reverse shot of 180 degrees, and the camera just pulls back slowly, revealing the ship is called the Valley Forge. It's owned by American Airlines space freighters. It contains southeast subtropical forests from the USA. And then over the top of that, we get this voice telling us a bit about what's going on, what is happening here. And it's a voice, as far as I can work out from the narrative of the film, from about eight years previous, Lau's been involved in the project that whole time, and all of the forests have been removed from Earth and put into these domes and sent out to orbit Saturn, ready to be recalled at some point. And the voice says something along the lines of, you know, in this first day of a new century, we humbly beg forgiveness. On this first day of a new century, we humbly beg forgiveness and dedicate these last forests of our once beautiful nation in the hope that they will one day return and grace our foul earth. Until that day, May God bless these gardens and the brave men who care for them. 
So th- this has set up the scenario, and we see a real conflict in the crew between Lowell and his three other companions, Keenan, Barker, and Wolf. And it's a really fraught one. I love the way that was filmed, and I love the acting in that sequence. Yeah, I think that's the best scene Go in, the, in the film. Why do you think down. that? Go on. Um, I just think that it gets across so much about the world. It's, it, it's exceptional world building, and, and it just all comes through an argument. So basically, you've got uh, Lowell saying, they're going to make us destroy this forest. We can't. This, these are the last forests. And yet the, his, his friends do not care in the slightest. And, and they bully him as well. They treat him like a weirdo. So we, all, we know straight away that Lowell represents an incredibly minority view. We also learn about the sort of society they've got. You know, there is no disease, no poverty. Everyone has a job, says one of one of the uh, colleagues who doesn't see a problem with blowing up the forest. He's just glad to be able to go home. You know, so it's a um, socialist vision. You know, everyone's got a job. Everything's fine. All human needs are taken care of. We don't need nature. And Lowe's only response to that, you know, he just says, well, yeah, you always say everyone's got a job, but there's no beauty in yeah. the world anymore. There's no more beauty. Nobody cares. Yeah. I love that scene. I love the kind of cutaways to one of the, it's, it's not Keenan, it's either Barker or Wolf, who just keeps looking every time Lowell's speaking like, who's this arsehole? You know, the look on his face, <laughs> the, uh, uh, not hate, but just this guy's ridiculous. He's got no clue. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's so out of step. I'd like to know what any one of you knows about real food. Well, what do you mean, real food? What, out of the dirt? That's real food, isn't it? That's right. This happens to be nature's greatest gift. To a celibate, maybe. <laughs> Go on, you guys. Maybe you know something we don't. Hmm? Hey, look, give me a slice of that cantaloupe, huh? Hey, don't ask Lowell for a slice. I'd be delighted to give you a slice of that cantaloupe. Just sit down and shut up. Sit down, sit down, sit down! And shut up and leave me alone, all of you, now, and let me eat. Hey, now, what's a big deal? I can't see the difference between that and this anyway. You don't see the difference? The difference is that I grew it. That's what the difference is. That I picked it and I fixed it. And it has a taste and it has some color. And it has a smell. And that it calls back a time when there were flowers all over the earth. And there were valleys. And there were plains of tall green grass that you could lie down in, that you could go to sleep in. And there were blue skies, and there was fresh air, and there were things growing all over the place, not just in some domed enclosures blasted some millions of miles out into space. So that's quite interesting there, Matt, that you, you were saying what the three crew members, the antagonists, represent is almost a socialist vision of success. And yet there has been this, from Lau's point of view, downside to it. Lau gets really cross with them and keeps shouting at them and does a few key speeches early on when he's got someone to talk to, yeah? Yeah. And he says, on Earth, everywhere you go, the temperature is 75 degrees. Everything's the same. All the people are exactly the same. Now, what kind of life is that? In other words, it's really harkering after a difference, the differences of people, the different environments of Earth, the different kind of places and that kind of like you know vive la difference the the joy of there being different ways of operating in the world yes yeah i think he is literally an eco-fascist i think that there is a definitely a line we can pursue that way it was very unabomber wasn't it yeah 
I mean, he's, he kills some people. He, he has a hand-to-hand fight with the guy he's closest to, Keenan, um, and kills him, and then ejects one of the domes to kill the other two people at a distance, I might add. You know, he, he doesn't want to get yeah. involved, yeah. And that I think that at-a-distance moment comes through quite a lot because when he buries or gets the robots to bury Keenan, he's back in the control room and he says some kind of words yeah. about what he had to do. I'll never be able to excuse myself, but I had to do it. But he can't go and bury Keenan himself. He can't even go within 100 metres of the event of the burial. Yeah, it's very um, it's very Eichmann. You know, it makes me think of what Hannah Arendt said about the banality of evil, of evil not being about having the red eyes, but being able to do things that you've got no moral justification for, even though you have no moral justification for it, and just being comfortable with that. You know, you might balk or throw up and feel sick at what you've done, but you've still done the thing. First, I felt like the film was um, setting up a very binary morality between yay trees and boo technology, but it is actually quite sophisticated because our protagonist is not not a hero <laughs> in any any sense. Yeah, so it's often criticised that you know you don't feel empathy for that character. I don't think you're supposed to. Yeah, I agree. That I mean, that is the essential point. That's that's wh- where the complexity of the film comes in, and it's really played out. In the third act, after he's you know faked the explosion on the spaceship and he's and he's traversed the rings of Saturn and and left the Berkshire behind, and for a while he can't even go back to that forest. the The rec room begins to look like a teenager's bedroom, yeah, with plates everywhere. He starts losing it a bit, and you really realise how long he's been away when he suddenly realises that he's eating this crap food that his colleagues were and decides to go back to the forest and finds that it's dying. And that's kind of like wakes him up again, yeah? Brings him round. He's gone through a massive trauma, one that he's brought upon himself or one that he sees at least unavoidable. He said he'll never be able to excuse himself, but I had to do it. And I think the film's really good at playing out the way in which he feels. I mean, can it be any coincidence that he's on there with three crew members and three drones and the drones in a sense replace the three humans and he goes on to name them Huey, Dewey and Louie. Louie's already gone at this point unfortunately named after Donald Duck's nephews that's where the Huey, Dewey and Louie comes from Um, and he begins to talk to them and treat them in a way and be able to interact with them with a certain kindness and and delicacy that he never could with his human crew. And I just, I thought that this was done absolutely deliberately. And I just wondered if you've got any thoughts about that. So I, I had the same same thought that, you know, he's, he's managed to interact with machines, which is ir- ironic because his whole thing is that technology has replaced nature. And the connection that he feels to nature in the abstract, nature of the forest. And, you know, it is always the forest that he talks about. It's not even the animals of the forest. Although he does seem to like the hawk or the eagle or whatever it is. And the rabbits. He loves the rabbits. Who doesn't? (laughs) But he's unable to, or doesn't seem to really place store on human connection until they're gone. And yet he's able to, and he's able to interact with the machines. Although he's still, he's still a, a bit annoying with them. And you get this sense that, and I don't know how you read the poker scene, but my reading of the poker scene is that the two robots are hustling him. 
because he's he doesn't treat them very well. Again, there's this lovely shot of the one of the robots is sort of resting, and the other one sort of like nudges him as though to say, "Look, the boss is here. You know, stand up straight." I think it's a really interesting design. They're very clunky, very rectangular, and yet yet the emotional performance of them is is really good. You know that that it's like watching cats communicate with each other without without words. You know they make well they do make little hisses and stuff like that. But like, even from a tilting, like, I mean, the there's a, there's a scene the scene where he's about to blow up the ship entirely with himself and with um, I can't remember if Huey or Dewey. But any, anyway, this is, it's sort of like he starts talking to him and you just sort of get this emotional reaction for the Rob and all it is just like this little tilt. And you know the Rob's going, oh, oh God, he's going to kill us. And there's nothing I can do about it. It's just there's so much emotion coming out of the, the sort of the filming and the acting of whoever the poor, poor soul is inside of it. It was double amputees that were using right, okay. without legs. So, you know, a lot of in, in early sci-fi, they had to work out ways in which you could build them around a human body, but still make them seem as though they weren't human. What what kind of tricks could you do? And they came up with the idea of using double amputee actors with with no legs to go in there. So um, that was done that way. But I think you're right. I mean, those robots, the, the, the emotion that you get out of those robots on screen is absolutely incredible. I liked your analogy of cats. I, I hadn't really kind of thought how I could, could capture that in words, but I think that's a, it's really good. They, they've got an animal-like way of, of connecting with each other. And yet there's no hint at all. And I thought this was left, it was left really ambiguous as to whether or not they were genuine AI or just robots, just machines. I think the film's really inviting you to, to think about that and question that, whether or not you're anthropomorphizing them, because that's what he's doing. Yeah. And that was my point about him replacing the three humans with the three drones. And he does treat them tenderly. The last shot we get of him when he's just about to blow up the ship with himself and Huey on there, who he's put back together and tried to save after he knocked him over, which he didn't try to do with Keenan, of course. Yeah. He puts his hand on the robot. It's just as he's about to sort of like explode the ship and kill them both. And the camera just pans back slowly from outside the window of the spaceship with him just touching, a bit of connection of him touching this robot mm. and pulls back out. And I think that, again, is, is a function of trying to, to really show the divided nature of his action. He's not an ideologue. He acted rashly. Mm. Yeah? He acted on impulse. He acted on his drives. Yeah, that overwhelmed him, and he feels regret. I would like to be able to say a, a prayer. But I, I don't really know how to say it. Wolf and Barker and Keenan, they weren't exactly my friends but I did like them and uh, uh, I I don't think that I'll ever be able to Excuse what it is that I did, but I had to do it. 
So Dave, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to go into detail about that you want to mention now? Yeah, okay. So uh, I think just as a kind of a, a side of, of the extra filmic um, notes, I guess, around this, we talked a bit about the director, Douglas Trumbull, at the very beginning of the, this episode. But it's just worth um, saying that the writer is called Michael Camino. He's wrote, for instance, the film The Deer Hunter in 1978. And he was also the writer and director of Heaven's Gate in 1980, which is known as being one of the most expensive overrunning films of all time and destroyed the company United Artists, which was set up at the beginning of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is set up at the beginning. Is that of- what happened to United Artists? Yeah, yeah. And so that was- I thought people just stopped going to see Bond. No, so United Artists was set up by Chaplin and Mary Pickford, D.W. Griffith, Douglas Fairbanks. So, you know, back in the early silent days, it was a way of escaping the contracts that these people were built into in the studios, which they set up their own studios, very actors, very creative you know, focus not towards the production and not towards money, but really towards the artists. And so it was quite famous for this and made hundreds of pictures over the years that were really creative. And, um, yeah, the writer of this film, through no fault of his own, I guess, though there are some distressing stories about uh, the way in which he was a director that kind of come out of the film, he destroyed the United Artists and they went <laughs> bankrupt within 10 years. So... Well done, Michael Camino. He didn't just blow up um, a spaceship. He also <laughs> blew up a film company. And what about you, Matt? You got anything you want to uh, just kind of sign off with? Yeah, just two two comments, really. Um, I really enjoyed the space corduroy. Sorry? The space corduroy. Nah, that escaped me. What do you, what, what do you mean, space corduroy? Yeah, well, you know corduroy. Yeah, I know corduroy. It makes you go vroop, vroop, vroop. Yeah, his, 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 his overalls are in... The corduroy. It's a it's a much maligned fabric, but you know, I mean, I like it. But I mean, it's it's something that um, show the era in which it made, was made. Yeah, very, yeah, very yeah, good. Yeah, but yeah, I enjoyed the space corduroy, and also I thought it was really ironic that all of the plants are made out of plastic. <laughs> there are probably still like bunnies and turtles and eagles that are breathing in that the set of Silent Running <laughs> to this day. <laughs> <laughs> you alright? Didn't think it was that funny. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>